0: So uh, I'm Brian Huesland, if you don't know me, um, and my wife Jennifer and I uh, have been a member of Grace Christian Fellowship for 15 years. Uh, We were um, here at GCF Central for five years, I believe. Uh, No, six years, I think. Uh, And then in 2013, when GCF North was planted, we join the first exodus, uh, but uh, we are thankful that um, this year we were able to come back and join the fellowship here. So if you don't mind, I'm going to pray, uh, because I really desperately need God to do something so what I say makes any sense to you right now. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the one who reveals And apart from your revelation, we would have no clue about ourselves, about the world, and about you. And that's a place of helplessness, Lord. But it's also a great place in which we can see how generous you are. That you give us specific revelation in your word to guide us. And your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what that says. You also have created this world not as some kind of fake or matrix-like deception, but rather, God, it is, it is the book of your general revelation, which, through a scriptural lens, through through a biblical understanding, we can start to understand and see how things connect and make sense. We can see observable phenomena um, and ask good questions. Sometimes we have answers, Lord. Sometimes. We just have to bow our knee before you and the mystery, and yet, Lord, you call us to try to understand. So help us today and help these things to um, just be beneficial for everyone. Help me, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps the relationship between creation and science could best be illustrated by that classic movie of American culture. I'm not speaking of Citizen Kane. Nor of Star Wars, but Nacho Libre, in which Esquelito uh, says, I don't know why you're always supposed to be judging me, because I only believe in science. And of course, Nacho's response is, you know, I, I, you know, I feel for your salvation, you know. You must be baptized. Um, now, obviously, Nacho's theology is not great either, But it does illustrate in a kind of a humorous way the fact that scripture and modern science really are uh, awkward partners at times. And so I guess the first thing we have to ask is, how do we see scripture and modern science? Do we see them as diametrically opposed and fighting in an alleyway? Or do we see them as together, wrestling with the questions of the modern age and coming to a place of of understanding and uh, encouragement in this uh, confusing and chaotic world. How can we find order? Well, we need to start, I think, by going to Mark 10, 9, where Jesus tells us that And he's, of course, referring to marriage, but I think there is applicability here. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man, let no one separate. And so there's many, many ways in which God has integrated things or he has placed things, they're supposed to inform each other. They're supposed to be uh, mutually helpful. And yet, because of our own sin and unbelief, it easily becomes this false dilemma. Um, and so we need to go back, and, and and as Grudem kind of reminds us in this chapter uh, of systematic theology, that theists were involved in the development of modern science at the very beginning. And that science as it's understood nowadays, which is now not only a discipline, but almost like a... Like, uh, uh, complete belief system, right, Uh, and the way it's treated. But really, all of this is is standing on the shoulders of people like Isaac Newton, uh, Johann Kepler, and many, many others who, because of their belief in a God who ordered the universe and designed it with intelligence, uh, that we should expect to find order in the observable universe. And that it, things should be able to make sense. Of course, this is, as well, combined with you know unhelpful philosophies and worldviews, such as the Enlightenment. So there's obviously issues. I'm not saying somehow that we had a golden age where every scientist was a Christian. But it would be also equally an exaggeration to say that, that theists were not even involved or barely involved. No, they were at the forefront scientific discoveries in um, the Renaissance era and afterwards. It's also helpful as we start talking about this to remember, hey guys, remember Galileo, remember Copernicus, and so it's really important that we have that recognition, that, that we would be humble and say, you know, it wasn't that long ago when when respectable Christians said the only orthodox belief is that the earth is at the center of the solar system. So it wasn't until, again, these people who were not atheists saying, okay, but how do we explain the retrograde or kind of you know, strange motion of the planets going through the night sky?" If the Earth is at the center, that, that just is hard to understand. So, you know, do more observations. Really, the advent of the telescope helped us a great deal there. So, again, um, science, being able to grind lenses, being able to look at things that's, that are far away, saying, all this must make sense because it's made by a creator God. And we may not understand everything he's done, but what he has done is, is real, and we can, to some extent, rationally understand it. And then that comes to a place of humility of saying, oh, what if the sun were at the center? Would that explain this? what we see? So this is a serious call to humility and curiosity, because neither should we in our pride say, well, I've got it all figured out. On the other hand, we must, I think, be willing to ask questions and be curious. And whatever level you're comfortable at, to say, you know what, this actually does matter. But I don't need to be an expert. There is a huge pressure today, I think. Like, if you're not an expert on this, well, you really just don't know anything. It's like, no, that's not true. Every human being has the ability to understand what they need to know about the origin of the universe, even if they don't know everything. So we you need to listen and look and think about this. So as we, as we move forward, a couple of, of other uh, points that are probably helpful. Just a reminder that on the one hand, the Bible is not a science textbook, which simply means that we are meant to use scripture not to explain everything observable, because that's not the purpose of scripture. Um, it, it doesn't... It's not meant to, to, um, to explain every observable thing and why that happens or how it works. However, on the other hand, the Bible is completely authoritative regarding the origin of life. So we see two opposite problems is that uh, you can either try to say, well, no, 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 the Bible the is about spiritual things. It has nothing to say about science. Oh, yes, it does. But on the other hand, you have, you know, an attitude that says, well, uh, we can somehow find within the Bible uh, secrets that, that somehow penetrate to everything out there. There's limits to what science can do and just honestly what our understanding can bring us to. There's mystery here. And Christians should not be anti-science, but that just asks the question, <laughs> What is science anyway? Well, I thought it'd be useful to go back 200 years and say, what did Webster say in 1828? The Webster's Dictionary in 1828 said, in a general sense, knowledge, if I can read this while shaking, in a general sense, knowledge or certain knowledge, the comprehension or understanding of truth or facts by the mind. Also, the seven liberal arts branches of knowledge grammar, logic, rhetoric, the trivium, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, the quadrivium. And and then a sample sentence. The science of God must be perfect. Okay, Okay. so really their broader understanding of this word science, we know words like omniscience have the word science embedded in it, right? Meaning God is all-knowing. So really the word science had that originally more expansive definition. 200 years later, uh, the online Merriam-Webster dictionary defines science this way a knowledge or system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through scientific method. The Malay taper, the largest of the world's four taper species, remained largely invisible to science until recently." And so you see a s- kind of a shift there, don't you? It's a little bit more of a narrower definition. And what I find really kind of fascinating just from a philosophical point of view is the way in which science kind of stands in as not as a just a collection of, of facts, but almost as this entity, almost. The taper remaining largely invisible to science. Science isn't a person, right? Science is a domain of knowledge. Well, anyway, not to be nitpicky, but you can see over time it's about What can we observe? What can we see? So there is truth to this. Hey, the domain of science is really about what we can see rather than staking, you know, saying, well, this is probably what happened. That's not really the domain of science. But it is very specific about what can be tested through the scientific method rather than that earlier sense, which is to try to understand God is the science of God. Of course, it's going to humble us, as should all sciences, in my opinion. So logic and science much more integrated than um, maybe people nowadays would would recognize that there's all this integration um, as we should expect from a common creator uh, or creator of all these things in common. So uh, we're going to look at two things, or at least this is what this is how Grudem lays it out. So I'm going to follow that. Okay. So he basically gives us three things uh, for the rest of this morning, for the next. 30, 35 minutes. What I'm going to try to do is I'm not going to try to do what I did last time I was teaching, which was kind of like the shotgun blast of information. Um, now, there's still going to be a lot here, but I am going to restrain myself. Plus, I'm skating on the, on the brink of my own knowledge here as well. There's so much in here. And Grudem acknowledges, he says, you know, uh, this is one of the only chapters where I have to make extensive quotations from other authors Because I'm not a science expert, and so he's looking to many other authors that he thinks uh, can can describe things better. But basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to walk you through three things. One, what would be the objections to the Darwinian theory of evolution just from a scientific point of view? In other words, I don't mean secular, but I mean if we were to start just by saying, does this even make sense? when we look at um, the world and what we can tell, especially with the recent, I mean, so uh, two things I need to quick say just because you need to know them. First of all, Grudem's first, I think Dave Dave Nelson and I were talking about this last night, I think Grudem's first edition of Systematic Theology was written in like 1996, kind of the mid-90s. And uh, he even anticipated that the next time (laughs) He says, in the next 25 years, I would expect that we will probably find a lot more um, discovery that will help clarify some things. And sure enough, the more and more we study the human uh, uh, genome, the more and more we study um, the, the cell, the more and more we study all sorts of um, details, we find that actually there's more and more of a scientific objection to Theory of evolution, um, and I, I'm going to try to make sure we have some time for questions or comments at the end. Okay, so that's why I'm going to gloss over a lot of stuff here. The other thing I do need to tell you is just, and I'll, I'll come back to this at the end, but um, just disclaimer. So I am a young Earther, but I'm a sympathetic young Earther, and I think that it's important that we not throw mud at each other. However, like I said, three things. One, what are the scientific objections to the Darwinian theory of evolution? Two. How does um, the the concept of theistic evolution, in other words, um, a a Christian view of evolution, how does that fall apart? You know, in what way does that not is that inconsistent with Scripture? And then, and then, and then, spending time on just looking at um, theological objections to the theory of evolution, and then getting a little bit more into saying, so what are the, you know, kind of more biblical possibilities and range of belief? And of course, we're not going to all land on the same place, are we? But what's non-negotiable? So that's where we're steering towards. So let's start with the scientific objections. Okay, like I said, I'm not going to do a deep dive into these because that would be trying to overload you, and I don't want to do that. However, if you're like, huh? Don't feel alone. I'm right there with you. Secondly, if you want to know more, hey, Grab yourself a copy of Grudem's Systematic Theology uh, or do a little bit of research online. Okay. So, first of all, evolution has no power to create new genetic information. What I mean by that is that random mutation and natural selection, which are the two processes uh, essential to Darwinian evolution, do not contain the creative power to generate the new genetic information that is necessary for the creation of new proteins and new forms of life. Two people that uh, Grudem does quote uh, in this section of his chapter quite a bit are Stephen Meyer uh, and the molecular biologist Douglas Axe. And again, there's just a ton of information in this chapter. I'm not going to go through all that. Yes? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I'm going to use what Grudem, how Grudem describes uh, that. The word evolution can be used in different ways. Sometimes it's used to refer to microevolution, which is our small developments within one species, so like, such as dog breeds, uh, so that we see flies or mosquitoes becoming immune to insecticides, human beings growing taller, et cetera, et cetera. Innumerable examples of such microevolution are evident today. No one denies that those exist. But that's not the sense in which the word evolution is usually used when discussing theories of creation evolution. So the term evolution is more commonly used to refer to macroevolution, the general theory of evolution, or what is sometimes called the Neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. Um, And that means that the history of the development of life began when a mix of chemicals present on the earth spontaneously at one time in the distant past uh, produced a very simple, probably one-celled life form This living cell reproduced itself and eventually there were some mutations or differences in the new cells produced. These mutations eventually led to the development of more complex life forms. A hostile environment meant that many of them would perish, but those that were better suited to their environment would survive and multiply. Thus nature exercised a process of natural selection in which the differing organisms most fitted to the environment survived. More and more mutations eventually developed into more and more varieties of living things. This is according to the theory. So that from the very simplest organism, all the complex life forms on Earth eventually develop through this process of random mutation and natural selection. So when we use the word evolution, we're referring to macroevolution. Okay. Does that help you? All right. Now, like I said, I'm not going deep dive on these. I'm just kind of hitting the points that he thinks are relevant for us to think about. Second point here, human intuition correctly recognizes that evolution is impossible. Let me me explain what I mean by that. So Douglas Axe, who was the molecular biologist I mentioned already, he illustrates how human beings intuitively recognize when a claimed sequence of highly unlikely events becomes not just unlikely or improbable, but actually impossible. Here's what Axe says. My cat used to love walking on my keyboard. But her steps across it never produced anything sensible. How could they? What she was doing, pressing keys with her weight, had absolutely no connection to writing, apart from the fact that it made letters appear on my laptop display. Anybody ever had a cat walk on the keyboard before? Nobody? You're dog people? Okay. Uh, Yeah, dogs don't walk on keyboards. Uh, Now, if I had to argue that it's possible for a cat's footsteps to compose a sensible paragraph, I know how I'd go about it. I'd break the impossible big outcome, a sensible paragraph, into something much smaller. Paragraphs are written one key stroke at a time, so that would be the attainable goal. If you had typed N-O-V-E-M-B-E, for example, no one would think it impossible for your cat to just happen to step on the R key, thereby completing the word November. It seems we also have to agree then that, well, the cat could have stepped on the shift key and then the N key to begin with, unlikely but not impossible. If it did, then we would agree that stepping on an O next is within the realm of possibility. And if that were to happen, well, who would say V couldn't be stepped on next? You get the idea. By continuing the succession of unlikely but possible steps, we seem to be forced to conclude that strictly speaking, it isn't impossible for a cat to have written this chapter for me, and yet we all know that practically speaking, it is impossible. So his his um, scenario or example he's trying to use a story is pointing out to the fact that um, in order for there to be changes, and again, there's there's just so much here we could go into, but but at the very beginning here, in order to have not um, you know, new genetic information, um, you've got a, a finite number of organisms that have ever lived. But the number of, of um, changes that would have to happen just uh, in, in, in order to be able to make a new protein fold, for example, out of amino acids, would require more small changes than we have organisms. Okay, So we're going to try to focus on the big points here rather than the small details. Like I said, it would take us all day to to wade through a lot of this information, and there are people well better suited than than me to ask some of this. But I'm just going to take you through some of it. Also, what Gruden points out is that random mutations are, for the most part, and actually overwhelmingly harmful. Um, We know this because of cancer. We know there's a lot of different mutations that, that uh, happen. But, but when we think about it, uh, a lot of the changes that can occur in the human body, uh, so for example, if a certain base in DNA is mutated, um, that will almost always be a negative thing. Uh, not necessarily, but there are a lot of harmful random mutations, so it's not going to be beneficial every time. And then just the fact that non-living matter does not contain and cannot produce the information necessary for life. James Tour, who is an, a synthetic organic, organic chemist um, and professor at Rice University, who is named among the 50 most influential scientists in the world today in, in uh, Research and Development magazine in 2013, wrote, few biologists have ever synthesized a complex molecule ab initio, out, of, out basically out of nothing. My experience with organic synthesis leads me to suggest that chemistry acting on its own simply does not do what it would need to do to generate the biologically relevant macromolecules, let alone the complex nanosystems in a living cell. So and he says, as a professor, we teach our students that when a mechanism, basically a a thing that you create to try to explain things, kind of like a geocentric model of the solar system. When a mechanism does not support their observations, the mechanism must either be revised to support the facts or entirely discounted. Those who think scientists understand how prebiotic chemical mechan- mechanisms produce the first life are wholly misinformed. Nobody understands how this happened. Maybe one day we will, but that day is far from today. So just that first initial step of you know, assuming that the chemically, because we're made of all these different things, that that this emerged, that itself is it cannot it cannot do that. Does not have the ability to produce the information necessary for life because of the intricacy of DNA on a micro uh, biological level. Creating new life forms would also require more changes than just mutations in DNA. For example, did you know that there's a thing called epigenetic information? So when you look at an embryo, it's not just that the embryo of an elephant is different from a monkey, is different from a human, but that apparently in the DNA, there's also basically this extra information which directs that embryo to develop a trunk or a leg or an arm. And so you not only need to have mutations in the DNA, you would also have to, at the very same time, Change the epigenetic information, or that kind of that kind of. Um, I kind of think of it like Legos. Again, I'm a fifth grade teacher, so bear with me. Um, so if if you if I have a, a Lego set that's a car, it's got a little instruction set. I can make the car right. Great. Now, if new pieces are introduced, right. Uh, that could make this car into a helicopter, but, but the, the instruction manual is not at the very same time changed, it will not create. It's more like a computer program in that sense, right? It's not like where we would say, oh, well, I, could just, I could just put this together and make it work. It's not like that. All these things have to be done at the same time. So it's not just a matter of new mutations. But you're going to have to have a new instruction manual. You're going to have to have a new new directive being able to, um, so that the the changes happen exactly at the right time in the embryo of each living creature. And that requires a coordinated activity of thousands of genes together (coughs) uh, in order to give an animal a new body form. Because transformations from one form to another are never simple, but require completely integrated transformation of, lo- of form for all associated structures, and all of these must be functional. And I know there's a few of you that probably have maybe some examples, and I'm going to try to leave some time at the end where you can say, well, yeah, what about this or this? But anyway, I'm going to keep on moving. So what else? Uh, Michael Behe, in, uh, also in the 90s, came out with a landmark book at that time, uh, and that was called... Darwin's black box, I believe. And, um, and he talked about the irreducible complexity of the living cell. When you, you've probably all studied the, the cell in high school, um, and there's so many pieces there that if you take one part out, they don't it's not like they can function without it usually. There's a number of different things. Um, and an example that Steven Meyer talked about uh, was the or no, sorry this is Michael Behe. The cilium, which is a structure that looks like a hair and beats like a whip and enables a cell to move around in a liquid somewhat like a paddle moves a boat. But the is so this is a oh, one-celled organism that's able to move itself around. The psyllium will only work if another component within the cell acts like a motor to provide energy and still other components act like connectors to transmit the energy from the motor to the paddle. The system is irreducibly complex because the whole system ceases to function if you take away one part he then argues that evolutionary theory can provide no explanation for this because the individual parts would be useless and would provide no natural advantage to the cell. I'm not sure if rotifers have cilium or not, or cilia, but there's a number of one celled organisms that, you know, that's how they function. So how would that evolve all at the same time? Um, Fossil record is filled with gaps characterized by sudden appearance and then continuity of recognizable kinds of animals. Um, and those transition fossils are few and far between. There's even arguments over the Archaeopteryx, which is one of the few. You know, It's this kind of like ancestor of the birds, bridge between the reptiles and the birds kind of thing. It's essentially a dinosaur. There are feathers shared between uh, these creatures, but it's not as clear and, and case closed as we would be led to believe because there just aren't as many of those transition Fossils, similarities in structure and appearance are better understood as evidence for the same designer than as evidence for the same ancestor. So that whole phylogenetic tree, right? I don't think that. I mean, I don't. I can't speak for Linnaeus; he's dead. But when when Linnaeus designed the um, modern, uh, you know, tax, taxonomy of of um, how you know you have genus and species, you have all these different ways of categorizing all the creatures. I don't think at the time he was saying, you know, it all has the same ancestor. He's looking at it and saying, how can we, looking at their, the shape of their bodies, their morphology, how can we tell them apart and find common characteristics just for ease in categorizing them? So I think that's a good point. Uh, Archeology span points to an abrupt appearance of humans on Earth, clearly distinct from older ape-like animals. Um, that's the other transition fossils. Some people will point to you and say, well, there are these kind of ape-like humans, but there are very few actual fossils. Teeth, portions of different skeletons, it's still being worked out. And human beings are vastly different from chimpanzees. This is a worthwhile quote to read to you. Our brains, this is, uh, let's see here, this is from Reeves, Colin Reeves and Ann uh, Gouger, a Swedish professor of mathematics and statistics. Okay, anyway, they, and, and also a scientist here, uh, Reeves. They go on to point out many di- more differences. Our brains are larger and continue to develop long after birth. Our musculature is weaker with smaller bone insertion points. Our thyroid hormone metabolism differs. Our immune systems differ. Our diets differ, and our intestines reflect that difference. We shed tears, chimpanzees don't. We can swim and have a diving reflex, but chimps can't swim. We walk and run upright. Our feet are different. Ours are designed for walking and chimps for climbing. Our shoulders are designed for throwing, while chimps are designed for climbing. Our pelvis and hips are oriented so as to permit upright walking. Our hands are designed for tool use, not knuckle walking. We have greater fine motor control, and our thumbs can touch the far side of our hands. Finally, there are all the cultural and behavioral differences. We plan. We think about the past and the future. We make intentional decisions. We can delay gratification for long periods. We engage in long-range trade. Adults play. We dance. We make music. We have language and communicate symbolically, and we write novels and poetry. We have mathematics and art. We domesticate animals and engage engage in agriculture. We wear clothing. We engage in hospitality. We control fire, and we measure time. We practice religion, and we bury the dead. We have empathy for others and altruism on a scale unknown in the animal world. We care for the infirm and the elderly. We see nothing like the human scale of behavior in chimpanzees. Our culture is exceptional, even unique by any standard of the animal kingdom. It is orders of magnitude and more more sophisticated than anything chimpanzees do. Are there similarities? Yes, but those similarities in structure are better understood as evidence for the same designer. The genetic diversity in the human race could have arisen from one original couple as opposed to often what we're told uh, uh, by those who would um, advocate Darwinian evolution. The unproven assumption behind evolutionary theory is naturalism, that there is no way to explain how things got here except through the physical, material world. So it's a bias there. What if scientists far in the future actually created life? What if if somehow they were able to to put together these chemicals in such a way that they could say, Eureka, we've actually created a one-celled organism. If such an amazing event occurred, it would actually support or demonstrate that life simply does not come about by chance, but must be intentionally created by an intelligent designer. At the end of the day, what oftentimes comes about is not so much honest seekers who are saying, well, this just seems to make sense, but people who are passionately desiring to find some way of explaining everything apart from the Bible. Now, this doesn't describe everyone, but I think to the great extent, it does. Um, and I, I was raised, I was raised, you know, believing evolution. Um, I, in a non-Christian home, you know, 10 years of indoctrination in the public schools, I This this was a theory of everything that explained how I came to be, and I didn't realize that there was any other way to explain it. The destructive influences of evolutionary theory and modern thought are many. If you are merely the product of matter plus time plus chance, do you really have any lasting importance at all in the face of an immense universe? You should all be in despair. And, of course, how are you to say that your moral code is, should be adopted by anyone else? In such a case, the only thing forbidden is to say that one knows that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, right? That, that's wrong. You, you can't say that. But I think that's changing now. I think people are, are starting to say, no, actually, there are certain things that are right and wrong, and you're wrong. And uh, your antiquated s- set of beliefs is... Um, and then you can go through all the, the woke terms today. But the idea there is, um, how do you have an ultimate sense of morality and what is true? It's got to be self-created, right? And how, how transcendent is that? How can we say something's racist unless there truly is a God who created us? And um, it's not just up to us. Okay. Grudem also points out that if we try to marry evolution with a belief in the gospel, we're going to have problems. His definition of theistic evolution is that God created matter and after that did not guide or intervene or act directly to cause any empirically detectable change.